Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So I walk out my room, probably six more men in this all-black armor, immediately point their gun to me. And I'm terrified. I'm so deeply terrified. I didn't know what to do. I thought they were going to hurt me. And I remember I asked one for a hug and he basically just like laughed in my face and was like, basically just treated me like a piece of crap child. And then they took my sister and I into a separate room and they, they searched us, full cavity search everything. We were like 13 years old. And then out the back towards where my mother was. And then I don't really know what happened after that. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, 
If you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends. This week on the Heal blog, we're sharing eight powerful ways embracing self-love leads to a positive body image. The journey to a positive body image can feel like an uphill battle in a world inundated with airbrushed images and narrow beauty standards. We've all experienced those moments of self-doubt, scrutinizing our reflection in a mirror and internalizing the relentless societal pressure to look a certain way. But what if I told you that the key to unlocking a healthier body image isn't in conforming to those external expectations, but it lies within the powerful realm of self-love? The link to this blog post is in the show notes. Every single guest that comes onto this podcast is here to share their story. And those stories can get deep, really deep. And we can feel the trauma and the despair and the hope and the strength pouring out from every guest. This podcast is about truth. That's why we're here because we value truth. We're done with being sucked into a matrix that tells us how we need to live our lives, what we need to do to be valuable. We just want truth, no more hiding, no more secrets. And whilst we hear that truth every single week on this podcast, almost every guest that has sat here and bled out their story will still reveal a deeper layer of trauma that they didn't share after the recording stops because even the truth has layers. A guest might say, my mother didn't treat me well. She won't often say exactly how that went down, the disgusting words that were used, the despicable physical abuse, whatever it is. And this is important. We don't grow up in abusive environments physically emotionally abandoning environments, lonely, unsafe, terrifying homes, and somehow magically become fully healed once we become adults. We just don't. When it's fully obvious that someone has been through immense trauma, their brain is changed forever. Their nervous system is changed forever. Those things don't work like they're supposed to. That's why for me, in my 20s, I describe myself as a mess because my brain and my nervous system were forever changed. I wasn't physically able to react and be the same as a person who had had a calm, positive experience of life when mine had felt like chaos. So before you judge anybody for what they've done, take a look at where they've been Are they angry, evasive? Are they unable to connect? Do they drink too much? Do they take drugs or lie through their teeth? Do they want to stay in, put on a fake persona or comfort themselves with food? Whatever ways they are coping in this moment, that's their truth. Don't judge them for it. Poor mental health is not pretty. It's not sexy. And especially if we've never been there, we don't understand it. It doesn't just disappear when the events are over. 
Someone might say, but all that trauma's in the past. You look good. You're doing well. You're coping. You're over it, aren't you? No. The events of the past are over. The trauma lives on and it is real and it makes us do things that might not be good things. It changes who we are. And that's what we're here to understand. Trauma changes us and that's the truth. My guest this week is Coralie and she has a story to share with you. She wants you to understand what life is like for a child living in a home with drug addicted parents. Not only that, her mother became a drug dealer, dealing methamphetamine for a local gang. Coralie's childhood was very unsafe and completely terrifying at times. What she saw happen to her mother, what she experienced herself, will have left her with untold levels of trauma, and that's her truth. That's what she has to live with every day. And with millions of parents drug and alcohol addicted in 2023, it is important we hear what happens to kids like Coralie, because being the child of an addict is never a child's choice. They have no say in their parents' decisions or actions, but they are the ones that must deal with the consequences for life. Please join me now for Coralie's story. Coralie, welcome to the podcast. You grew up in a small town in New Zealand. Your mum and dad were both drug addicts and your mum progressed to selling methamphetamine for a local gang called the Mongrel Mob. This was an incredibly unsafe home for little kids. And I know you want to share your story because you want people to understand what life is like for a child growing up in a home with drug addicted parents. Your mum hadn't always been a drug addict, though. Do you remember a time at all before all of this happened, before drugs took over your home? Do you remember happy times? Yeah, I definitely had a lot of happy times. I mean, I've got a twin sister I'm incredibly close with, and a lot of my happy memories are with her, like you know, learning to ride a bike or swimming in the pool together, things like that. But I think for as long as I can look back, my mum had always used drugs, but not in a, in a suffocating way in which I was really aware. I mean, now that I've, I've become aware because people have told me, but I was probably maybe like eight or nine when she really started using drugs. Mm. So before that, it was all happy memories. My grandparents and you know, I was just a young little kid naive to it, playing with my Barbie dolls. And so what happened? What actually changed it for your mum? I think for my mum, she lost someone that she really was close to, a boyfriend, I think. He had a car accident and and she just got on the wrong crowd. She broke her back and that put her on opiates and it was just like a downward spiral from there. And my dad also, I mean, he's always been heavily addicted to marijuana, but that, I mean, it very quickly progresses to other things because you're just in that environment where, you know, there's pills and there's meth and there's you know, a bunch of other things that you're exposed to and actually you go and do it. Yeah. And how long did it take her to progress from a drug user to selling drugs? Almost as soon as she started using meth, she became a dealer because you just can't fund that sort of habit if you don't sell it. And so she kind of used selling it as a way to fund her own habit and then it just progressively got so much worse from there. And she was selling for a mob. Do you know much about them? Yeah, so I grew up my entire life around the, the Mongol mob. Like as far as I can look back, the Mongol mob were always there. 
I think in the town that I lived in, Flaxmere, it's a huge mob culture. The Mongol mob run the town. And so you would always see them as present. But I think in my life, they become re- they became really present when we're in this house on it's called Flaxmere Ave. My mum had broken her back and she had just started selling meth. And they had to come and ensure that she was still meeting her targets and things. And so they were really prevalent in our life around almost every day. And I mean, going forward as well, every day. Wow. So your mum's selling drugs. What type of people are you around? What sort of people are turning up at the house? There's like a lot of, surprisingly, a lot of different people. I mean, we had lawyers come to our house that were using meth, even a judge that I remember using meth. Predominantly, though, a lot of people probably my age now, 24 to like 28, that had just got in the wrong crowd. My mum is quite maternal and she had taken a lot of, I'm going to call them the strays, but I'm, I'm sure that's not what they'd love to be called. And she would like look after them, which also meant feeding their habit, unfortunately. But she really, yeah, took took them in and provided them shelter, etc. But I would say predominantly them and a lot of like older men as well. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it, how many different types of people use meth like when you talk yeah. about a judge yeah and so the did the judge turn up at the house as well so I only know about this anecdotally through my sister who was in conversation with him and he then later was apparently in like a court hearing with my mum but I mean a lot of lawyers though and even lawyers that I when I started working in criminal law I'd see them I'd be like my mum is so unique wow Oh, wow. That's a lot of risk-taking, isn't it, for people to keep that habit because, you know, they've got to be seen by people doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's a nasty habit. And Mm. you become very one-track minded. Where Mm. can I get my next fix? And so for them, I don't think anonymity was particularly important. I mean, Mm. it gets so bad. And, I mean... You, can, you know when someone's addicted to meth, you can see it in their face. They get scabs, sunken in face. I mean, it's awful. So, like, anonymity is never going to last long anyway. Yeah, right. And how desperate did your mum get to feed her own habit? Oh, incredibly so. I mean, she was, when she was selling for the mob, I thought that was the worst of it. I thought, you know, she's going to sell for them. And I was young, really young. And so I didn't really understand the consequences, but I was like, if this is as bad as it's going to get, it's as bad as it's going to get. But she would take, I mean, people would go rob houses for her so that she could fund her own habit and she would sell off the things for meth in exchange. She would allow the mongrel mob to rape her so that she wouldn't get beaten, just so that she could still continue to fund her own habit. I mean, it was a really, I mean, I really, now that I'm an adult, I really feel for her. I mean, you can't, I used to hate her. I used to hate her so much. But now I just, I'm like, how did you get yourself in that situation? I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to have that kind of look back to it, isn't it? Where you, you do find that understanding. And because yeah. people can be so harsh with people who are drug addicts, you know, they're the low lifes, they're the mm-hmm. whatever, but, you know, they're not, really choosing that life it's it's literally taken hold of their body they don't have a real choice yeah. I mean they I don't know how hard it is to get off of meth but it must be 
incredibly hard. Yeah, must be one of the hardest. Yeah, absolutely. But I still, I mean, I'm a firm believer that it is a choice, especially Mm. when you've got, you know, two beautiful twin girls and and my older brother, Michael. Like, you can't look at your kids every single day and, you know, that's a choice. You prioritise drugs over them. And that's a choice you have to live with as well. And I think my mum's really recognised that recently, especially really recognised that. But I still, I'm definitely a firm believer that she made a choice and it was a horrible one, but it was still a choice nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned you have a twin sister and a, and a brother. What was life like every day in terms of was there anybody really looking out for you? Did you have any kind of support from anybody outside of your parents? Yeah, my grandmother used to look after us a lot. And we used to go live with her a lot as well because my mum would get kicked out of places all the time because you can't, you know, have a meth lab at a house, apparently. So we'd always go back to her. I remember if you want like a real example of day-to-day living, I think a really good example is when my my sister and I, we were in what we call intermediate in Australia. I think you call it intermediate as well. Here in America, they call it middle school. We were in middle school and my sister and I were coming home from school. My brother is on the same route as us. We'd meet him halfway and then we'd walk the rest of the way. My sister and I kind of just felt like something was off. We didn't know what. We hadn't been home yet. But we just knew when we get home and there's a man standing outside our house with a sawn-off shotgun. And this wasn't like uncommon for us. And our entire house had been robbed. My mum is on the couch holding her wounds because they had stabbed her and stolen all her her supply so that she couldn't sell it. And so this man just sits outside our house for days on end protecting it. And my sister and I, you know, young, probably 10 years old, terrified that this man has a gun outside. Our mum has just been beaten, stabbed, probably raped. Our dog has been stabbed as well. I mean, these people are awful, awful people. My goodness, I don't know how, like, how a little child functions. How do you think you were surviving mentally? I mean, was there a lot of dissociation? Totally. And I dissociate now as well, like vividly. I, I mean, there are points where in the middle of my day where I just am absolutely not present. And I think that's probably how my twin sister and I survived that. But also you don't really, like, you don't know the difference. Like that's your life and you think life is that hard and you just go with it. No, mm. it is that hard and I that's what I have to deal with. My, we had crippling depression. I mean, probably 10 years old and we're self-harming every day. I remember my sister and I would write poetry in our books, which is so cringe. But I look back on it now and we were sad kids, really sad kids, just desperate for someone to like look in and help us. Yeah. And I mean, you're just living in chaos, aren't you? Chaos becomes normal. All the time. Yeah. So you're totally unsafe. There's no feeling of safety there whatsoever. And yeah, I mean, it's. It's so much for a little 10-year-old, couple of 10-year-old yeah. children to deal with. And yeah. nobody's really, I mean, you've got your grandmother there, but she was probably at a loss as well to know really how to yeah, help you. She is not yeah. Mm. And I, I think that's probably like a really good point because, I mean, it's not an uncommon story. There's lots of kids that live a life like I live, especially in New Zealand and Australia. I mean, one in seven 
children in America have addict parents. It's quite a few. I mean, I'm sure most of them haven't lived, you know, as severe as what my siblings and I lived and some have more severe, but still, you know, it's not uncommon to feel that unsafe. And to those kids, they really just don't know any better. They don't know that life is actually just not that hard. Mm. It's really just not that hard. But for them in that moment, it just feels suffocating. It feels overwhelming. It feels like anything could end you at any point. But they don't know, actually, life. I mean, it sucks, but it's actually a lot better than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the nightmare of your mum running this drug business came to an end one day when your house was raided by police. Can you tell us what happened that day? Yeah. I mean, this day sits with me a lot. I mean, if I hear glass shattering now, I still am transported back to it immediately, have severe panic attacks. It's just, I mean, it's the day that my mum was taken away, which, you know, sounds like it's probably a good thing, at least for the community. But for my siblings and I, it was pretty traumatic. I remember the week before my mum's house got raided, our house got raided, the next door neighbours had plastered on the footpath, get your drugs here. And so we kind of knew it was impending that the police were going to come. If the whole neighbourhood knew, the police inevitably knew. And then the Friday after that, they had stormed into our house, smashed down our front door with a battering ram. I remember I was sitting in my room. My sister and I had separate rooms. My brother was up the back in an outhouse. And my room looked out towards back towards my brother's room. And I heard this smashing glass and I immediately thought it was the mongrel mob. I, I knew it. I like felt it in my being that it was a mongrel mob. They were here to kill my mum. They were here, here to make good on their promise to rape my sister and I. And I thought that was the end. I thought we were all going to die that day. That was it. And then I heard a lot of hushed tones. So I look out the back of my window and I see my brother being forced on the ground by six men in armed, like black armour, huge guns. And I'm like, it's the police, thank God. So I walk out my room, probably six more men and this all black armor immediately point their gun to me. And I'm terrified. I'm so deeply terrified. I didn't know what to do. I thought they were going to hurt me. And I remember I asked one for a hug and he basically just like laughed in my face and was like, basically just treated me like a piece of crap child. And then they took my sister and I into a separate room and they, they searched us, full cavity search everything. We were like 13 years old. And then out the back towards where my mother was. And then... I don't really know what happened after that. Don't even know how I got to my grandmother's house. No idea. Absolutely no idea. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it just doesn't seem right, does it, that your mother is doing drugs, your little kids, and they point guns at you, they do full cavity searches. I mean, that's that's so traumatic. Surely that's not the way that little kids, it's like you're, it's like you, yeah, the criminal and And you're just the little kids. I mean, you've got absolutely no choice in this whatsoever. But that's how they treat you going forward as well. As soon as you're a drug addict's child or a drug dealer's child, you're treated as a criminal for the rest of your life. I remember like crawling myself out of it at high school initially and teachers would bet on my sister and I whether or not we were going to graduate, whether or not we were going to pass classes. They basically just saw us as like fun jokes. Entertainment. Wow. And they would tell us about these these bets as well all the time. Like, oh, you've got to stay for at least another term because I've made a bet that you will. It was awful. So awful. 
Can I just go back a step? Because when you were talking about the police turning up, you said that you were scared because you thought that the mob were going to make good and they promised to rape you and your sister. So was that one of the threats you were given to you or is this to your mum or how did you know was, about that? It was to my twin sister. I Essentially we were really good friends with the girl in middle school and her uncle was the person that my mum sold for. And we had got into a lot of trouble at school, managed to get ourselves expelled. And so he got really angry and he thought it was my twin sister and I's fault that she got expelled. So my mum was told that she had to take my sister and I over to this man's house where he just stood waiting for us with this bat in his hand and he was tapping it like he was threatening us. We're taken inside. My mum's taken into another location. She can't see us. It's not even like she tried to, to be fair. And then his girlfriend and him sat there and told us that they were going to beat us if we hung out with her again. And that if we were to get her in any more trouble, that they would do what they do to my mum, which is rape her and beat her. And we'll never, we'll never see like daylight again, essentially. Oh my God. So I was certain, I was certain when I heard that crash, we sound it was them because they, they broke into our house all the time. I mean, that wasn't uncommon. And my mum's clientele all the time broke into our house and steal our things really wasn't uncommon. So I was, I, I like knew it, but it wasn't thankfully, thankfully. Oh my God. I, I mean, it's impossible to understand that there are actually people like this, you know, you hear about gangs and, and you hear about all these things, but actually speaking to little kids that way and threatening them that way, it's, it's just impossible to believe, isn't it? That, that people can be that way. My God, you must have just been terrified 24-7. I think it's probably that thing where you just have to keep burying it, don't you? You have to survive, but you you just sort of have to keep going. But also there's like light in those moments as well. As much as it's terrifying to have these people smoke meth in your house and random people at all hours come in and buy meth from your mum, you know, you start to make friends with these people and they start to care for you and they take you out for food and so in the midst of all these really terrifying moments, there's also some really joyful moments. I remember, which is so stupid, I got my first iPad. It was definitely stolen, absolutely 100% stolen. But I was so excited because this man had come to deliver me this iPad that it was really stolen. But I didn't know that at the time. I was so excited. And I was like, this is what my mum does. She just gives me presents all day. She has so much money all the time. I could do whatever I want. Like, I really honestly had... I just didn't know any different, mm. any different. Yeah, absolutely. And and just that little girl who in the midst of a, a raid asks the policeman for a hug. I mean, it's it's just so, it's just so sad. And so scared. I was terrifying. so scared. Yeah. And I just, I remember looking at these men and I was like, they're covered in all black. Like, I don't know who's under there. I have no idea who's under there. I remember, like, searching just somewhere just for a little bit of skin. I'm like, that is a human in there. And I did, and then I saw him, and I asked him for a hug, and he couldn't give me one, and that's fine. I remember just feeling so rejected. I was like, why doesn't this man want to give me, you know, a young 13-year-old girl a hug? Like, I'm so scared right now. Mm. Yeah, and it's just, 
reaching out, isn't it? It's reaching out for some humanity in such a terrifying situation. Yeah. I also knew that he was coming to save me in some aspect as well. Mm. Well, so right. I also was like, yeah. you're saving me. Like, get me out of here. But then they, they don't treat you like that. They take your phones, everything. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So you were taken away from your home your mum is taken away I mean that's traumatic just that one thing is traumatic when your mum is taken away right because you probably have no idea where she is you know when you're going to see her next time Mm -hmm. that must have been just scary in in that and then what what actually happened to you I don't remember what happened after so essentially the last thing I remember that day is my mum being tased. I just remember her really loud screams and then that's it. I don't remember how we got to my grandmother's house later that day. I don't remember who picked us up. I, I genuinely have no idea. But I do know that we went to my grandmother's house and the first night without our mum, my twin sister and I were going to bed early. We just sobbed the entire night and not like a little quiet sob, dry heaving, vomiting, so angry so overwhelmed we didn't know where our mum was was screaming for her which is so hard for my grandmother who's just like what has my daughter done she's coping she's trying to stay above board and then these two girls are like inconsolable I mean people couldn't touch us my sister I didn't want to be spoken to it was so awful oh my god and and were you offered any kind of counseling or any kind of help no, the only eligible counselling that you'd be given is if you're a victim. And because we weren't victims, we were, I guess, a part of the crime. We weren't offered anything. But when I went to high school, I think they could see that my sister and I were very unwell. I mean, we were, I mean, had scars everywhere. We were, oh, it was just, I don't even know. So I was adopted afterwards. I went and stayed with my grandmother for a few months. Essentially, I ran away from home unfortunately was raped by the man that said that would rape me and then adopted basically days after because my grandmother couldn't couldn't do it it's just I was too much for her which is understandable and so I leave my twin sister and I go and live with my father in a different city in a bigger city called Hamilton and get involved in a church there and then the pastors of the church end up fostering my twin sister and I and I often look at them and I'm like how did you take in this like broken human and like how did like that's such a sacrifice I was 13 years old 
it's serious eating disorder, serious, serious, serious sexual assault trauma, trauma from my mum. These people just just did it. I could I could never do it. I mean, I look at kids now, I'm like, that was a lot of effort. Mm. I don't know how they did it. How incredible that they did that. And and so you're 13 at this point? Yep, 13. Yeah. And so they take you in and look after you and you go to school and you they try and bring you back to some sort of normal life? Yeah, gave us boundaries, rules, routines. So we were fostered by two families, the Hewitts and then the Jollies. So the Hewitts were the pastors and they would look after us on the weekend and then Megan would look after us during the week. And she just implemented really strict boundaries in which we thrived under, just as kids do. But she she made sure that we always ate at the table. We went to school with packed lunch. She drove us to school. She picked us up from school. She let us do all the extracurriculars we could ever have dreamed of. If we needed assistance in any way, she would hire us tutors. We always had to play a sport. Just really good structure. That has definitely made me the person that I am today. Without her, I would never have. I don't think I would have survived. Wow, it's like it's like angels appearing in your life, really, isn't it? At that point, totally. people that just actually care, and it's it's probably hard for you to even imagine that life can be this simple. I guess. Oh, yeah, I mean, I speak to little kids all the time. I go to a lot of foster homes, and I literally just look at them. I'm like, you don't know this. Like, you don't know. But life is not that hard. It is so much easier than you could have ever imagined you don't deserve this like this gets better gets so much better absolutely I think yeah I think kids expect so much now a lot of kids don't realize how easy their lives are when you look at what somebody like yourself has been through I often speak to my my friend Ian who's grown up in a lot of privilege he's the most understanding man ever he's so lovely he grew up in a lot of American privilege specifically, which is very, very different to anywhere else in the world, as I'm sure you know. He didn't have to worry about a single thing, even now. Like if he wants to rent an apartment, his parents can be the co-signers and everything, it's fine. And I speak to him about these experiences and he's like, I just don't know what I would have done in that circumstance. He's just, he's, I just don't know. Like, I didn't realize how lucky I was. Yeah. Absolutely. But just going back, you know, when I asked you about whether you got any help after all of that happened, if you got any counselling and you said, no, that's only for the victims, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you are a victim mm-hmm. in in all of that. And it's interesting that nobody sees it that way. No. Because They see it as a lost cause, gone, down the drain. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I, I I hope that that changes because you're just as much of a victim as, as anybody in this story. Also my mum, she's a victim too, mm. you know? And I don't even really like the word victim because I think it has this negative connotation. No one really likes victim mentality, right? Mm. But sometimes people just have some shitty things happen to them that they need to work through. And my mum, for sure, I mean, she didn't do drugs for no reason. Shouldn't get into that environment for no reason. And same with my sister and I. You know, we didn't ask for it. And we were forced into a situation. But also, you know, we didn't, we still need help. My brother, too, he needs help. My grandmother probably would have done really well with some help. Everyone needs to go to therapy, actually. Everyone needs to go to therapy. Yeah. So 
your mum finally went to court, I'm assuming, for everything that had happened. What what happened to her? So she was charged with, I think, 15 charges, which is quite a few. And I remember the first court hearing where she had to, basically, she was applying for bail, which she would never have gotten, but she applied for it nonetheless. And she had to go in, she had to say whether or not she was guilty or not, whatever, however it goes. I remember sitting there and I was like, that is a lot of charges, lady. But also I'm like, you have not done good. I remember I was looking at the prosecutor and I was like, you're doing such a good job. So you're doing so well. And then after that, she pled guilty. She was sentenced to four and a half years in prison and very quickly shipped off to the local, which isn't that local, prison, which is an eight-hour drive away from where my sister and I lived. So did you see very much of her for four years? The first year, we didn't see any of her. It's really hard to get kids' permission to go into prison because you need an ID and things like that, which 13-year-old girls don't have. But when we were adopted, our adopted parents took that role on and they took us quite a few times. We would go almost once a month, every second week almost, which was, I think, it was good for us to see our mom, but also to see her in a prison. I think I don't know how useful that was really for my understanding of her now. Yeah. And so were you in any kind of contact with her apart from those visits? Did you... I mean, could you write to her or speak to her on the phone? Yeah, we spoke on the phone regularly and she would write us letters. And I still have all the letters that she wrote us, often just apologising. Just, I'm really, really sorry. I miss you. She calls us my babies. I miss you, my babies. And then often in prison there to keep you busy, they get you to do often arts and crafts. So now I have an abundance of quilts if you need one and stuffed animals also if you need one. Oh. Whenever I have friends over to my house, I'm like, do you like my prison blanket? My mother oh. made it for me. And so your experience of being in that courtroom with your your mum on trial, that, that shifted something in you, didn't it, to yeah. what you wanted to do for your own future? Yeah. I mean, I knew almost instantly that I wanted to be a lawyer. I kind of knew before that because you always have this innate sense of right and wrong. And I was very passionate that what my mum was doing was wrong. I didn't have the, the guts to tell her, something that I often regret today. But when I saw the prosecutor, you know, just doing her job as she should have been doing, I was like, wow, you know, that's a real service to the community. Ironically, I then got into defence law, which is so funny. <laughs> now I, even in Boston, I work predominantly with lawyers here, attorneys here that defend criminals which I think is a really privileged job to have. But one day, maybe I'll go into prosecution if I ever finish law school. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you left New Zealand, you live in, in Boston. Why did you go to the US? I think I just always wanted to go. I'd always loved Gilmore Girls, which I was on the East Coast, and then she moves to mostly Connecticut for Yale. And then I got involved with a law firm here that, I mean, really just took me in. Now I'm involved with another law firm here as well, who's also great. We're going to a Red Sox game on Friday. It's very exciting. Yeah, and I just knew I just knew that I wanted to be in an environment where litigation was large. I wanted to be in a courtroom. I wanted it to be theatrical. I wanted the laws to be malleable enough that I could fight for something that I thought was right. And that's, that's America. It's so litigious. Everyone is just amazingly dramatic and cool. 
involved, which I really enjoy. And also, this I think working in defense law is a really unique position. I mean, you get almost automatically direct contact to someone that's really done something wrong that you know you can help. You know, it's a really unique position to change someone's life to sit someone down and say, hey, why are you doing this? How'd you get here? How can I help? Like, what's the next steps for you? Beyond this trial, what do you need from me? Mm. I think that's really cool. Especially now that I'm not so angry at my mum, I can look at them and I can see that they're actually humans and they didn't get into this situation because they wanted to be lifelong drug addicts and criminals. Something's happened to them or to their parents or whatever. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such an important understanding, isn't it? That a lot of people, you know, it passes a lot of people by that that understanding and just being an advocate for those those people so I know you're currently writing a book which tells your story why Mm. is it important to you to share your story I get asked this question a lot often people think it's narcissistic but I just want people to know about this cool I guess brain stretches story really why I've done it when I was in law school in New Zealand a girl asked me once who wins when you win and I, that really impacted me. I was like, no one, no one wins. And then I thought about it more. I was actually, the people that win when I win are little kids that grow up like me, little kids in foster homes, people that just don't know life is actually pretty great. And so I'm writing the book predominantly so I can advocate to these kids, hopefully start a foundation out of it and just teach them actually, no matter how traumatic your upbringing was, there is a way out. And I can help you with that. I can show you the way out. Life is so good. Just give it some time. And so really it's this concept of who wins when you win. So look, foster kids win when I win. I think the book's a massive win. Mm, I love that so much. So what is the name of the book? I'm not actually allowed to say right now. Oh, okay. Because we've changed it three times. So I am. But the thing is, so it was going to be called Things I Wish You Knew, which I think is a great name. But we've, we've since changed it a couple of times and I'm not certain, but I'm finally going to name it. I've still got three chapters left to write, so we'll see how that okay. goes. Well, you'll have to let us know when it comes out so that we can put it up and everybody can find your book. So what is the thing that kids in a situation that you've been in, what is it do you think that they need the most? Hope. Hope, 100%. They need hope and compassion because for them, it is literally, they know no different in the life that they're living right now. And that life is hell. So just to give them a little glimmer of hope and a path out, a plan. I mean, that's what I really appreciated is someone sat down with me and said, who do you want to be, Coralie? And I said, I want to be not a drug addict. I don't want to be a criminal. Someone sat down with me and they walked me through how I could do that. I mean, it was pretty easy, but it didn't feel easy to me at that point. Especially, I never really been encouraged to take school that seriously and then when I was fostered almost immediately I really learned that I was quite good at school I loved school and then went down that route I told my foster parents I wanted to be a lawyer and they helped me in every single way possible they gave me structure I mean this one thing that my foster mom Megan always used to tell me is dig deep Coralie whenever life just got a little bit tough dig deep Coralie and now when I'm like sitting there writing a really long, stupid essay, I just think, oh, dig deep. I think that's cool. That hope there that actually I can do it. I know that I can do it. Mm, I love that. 
just dig deep. I love that advice. Dig deep. And it's like, just those simple things, it isn't it? Yeah, I love it. I love it. Whenever, I mean, I've got some really bad press recently for shitty things that I've done. And I just remember, actually, you know, life was so much worse for me years ago, more than a decade ago. And if I can get through that, I can get through anything. I just need to dig a little bit deeper, work a little bit harder, be a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. And those people are still, those those beautiful foster parents are still a part of your life. Yeah, they are. They are. I'm very lucky. They're, I mean, they're beautiful humans, always there to support me when I need it. Give me good, frank, honest advice, which I think a lot of people don't get, but they're very good at, which is sometimes humbling. Yeah, absolutely. And so how are you dealing with the trauma from everything that happened to you? How how are you getting on with that today? How does it affect you still? I mean, if you had asked me a year ago, I would have said fine. I would have said absolutely fine. I mean, it's only made me a better human, I would have said. But what I didn't realize is that I had just pushed it down as far as it could possibly go. I had pushed it. And then writing the book and even before writing the book, just let loose, just uncontrollably let loose. And so now I think I'm taking it a day at a time. I'm trying to approach every day like it's the best day in the entire world. I'm going, I'm just being grateful. So grateful that that's actually not a life I live anymore. And also nice to my parents because I know that I used to be really angry and that made things a lot harder. And what I didn't know was that anger was obviously trauma, right? Mm. But for me, I was like, this is justifiable. I don't need to speak to them. But now I'm like, actually, this isn't serving anyone. They love me. What they did wasn't, it's not a reflection of them. They're just human. And I just need to take that in and love them and give them the support that I can give. And then they're back as well. Mm, That's so beautiful. And it's incredible that you've come to that realization when you're still quite young I mean I think a lot of people you know it takes them a lifetime to figure some of that stuff out and so you know it, it's it easier is to be angry. it's easy to be angry wait, you say? wait. yeah absolutely and it's absolutely. more satisfying it's more satisfying to look at someone and be like I hate you for what you did to me mm. but long term it just doesn't serve anyone yeah not even you it just makes you a bitter awful person so what is your relationship like with your mum and dad? My dad, I don't speak to often. I do speak to him. He messages me a lot. I think we've, he's never really been in our life. So I've let him in to the extent that I'm like comfortable with letting him in. But my mum, her and I have become a lot closer. We speak maybe once or twice a week. I definitely will never speak to her about drugs because I just get really upset. I don't speak to her about the past because she gets really upset about it I mean obviously she's really regretful and she's really shameful and even when I post things now or I tell her about what my publishers are saying how excited I am she just feels a lot of shame about the story so we try to work through that but most of the time we just you know talk about really happy things she sends me little gift baskets of New Zealand things that I miss yeah just one day at a time with her it's a fragile fragile relationship but one day at a time yeah it is I mean it would be incredibly hard and that like you say there is so much shame isn't there in those stories but but yeah there should be shame like what she did was a shameful thing to do Mm. she should feel ashamed and no part of me thinks that she shouldn't but she shouldn't let that shame consume her Mm. I mean it is embarrassing it is it's just consequences to your actions, actually. Yeah, 
That's true. So how do you see your future now? I'd like to finish school. I'd like to start a foundation and possibly some sort of foster care scholarship maybe in my future. I don't know. Get the book out, see what happens from there. Yeah. One day at a time. I'm very much one day at a time right now. Hmm. And is there anything else you want to share on the podcast? No, I don't think so. I think if any kids that have lived or adults that have lived similar lives to me, and they're listening to this, I think what I would really want them to know is I'm so proud that hopefully out of whatever situation that they're out of, message me whenever. I mean, anyone that's had an addict parent will know you should be proud of yourself for just surviving. You did good. Yeah. So how can people find you if they want My to reach Instagram out? is the best mm-hmm. one, which is just Coralie, C-A dot C-A. Coralie is a really hard name to spell, C-O-R-A-L-L-E-E dot C-A, or TikTok, which is the same thing. Okay. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes. And you. Coralie, you're incredible to share your story, to speak up, shedding light on what goes on for little kids in homes with drug addiction. It's so important As you say, these stories are much more common than we think they are. And one in seven in the US, as you said, drug addicted parents. It's quite a terrifying statistic, really. Oh, it's it's just addict parents. That includes alcoholism as well. But it's, it's a staggering, staggering statistic. When I was doing my research for the research project that I'm on at the moment, I was like, that is outrageous. Yeah. What are people doing? I know. What are people doing? <laughs> what are people, people doing? doing? I'm like, oh my gosh. Surely the government sees this. Mm. I'm like, there has to be a fix here. What are people doing? Yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying. Terrifying. Thank you well, so I, much for having me. I wish you so much luck with your book and getting it published. And yeah, everything you're sharing Thank is you so, so inspirational. Thank you so much. Thank you. you for being on this journey of healing and community with me if you listen on apple i would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast it would mean a lot check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode if you're on instagram follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. 